Hello everyone and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm Joe Lowry and I'm joined by my co-host Jordan Angeli. Jordan, have you taken a deep breath after all of that decision day action? I think so. Goodness gracious. <laughs> there were goals. There were fights. Well, almost a fight, fight in the crew game. It was just heated. You know, this is what happens at the end of the season. Things mean a little bit more and uh, people start playing like that. So it was fun. The Western Conference was basically set before this decision day matchup, before Sunday's games. The Eastern Conference had some spots still to play for. We had Inter-Miami, D.C. United, Montreal, Chicago, and Atlanta United battling for two playoff spots. Miami and Montreal come away with those two spots. But my point of listing those those teams in that reality is that even with one conference, with mm-hmm. no playoff spots up for grabs, Decision Day is still crazy. How does yeah. that happen? Libby, how does that work? I don't understand it. Well, even in the East, I can speak to... Just what I knew from going into the day with the Columbus crew is depending on how you finish and how other games finish really determined who you were going to play, even though your spots were guaranteed the crew because they won and the results in Orlando happened how it was Nashville beating Orlando. They now don't have to play New York City first, which if you're any team right now, you don't want to play New York City, and you're going to talk a lot about that because they are um, a team with a a really good streak going. So I think that there always is something to play for, it, whether it's points, whether it's standings within that final decision day, whether it's the shield or just pride in a spot for next year on your team. I think there's there was a lot on the line here today. I've got a couple of housekeeping things before we get into the nuts and bolts of this episode. Up first, congratulations to the Philadelphia Union for winning the Supporters' Shield on Sunday. They beat the New England Revolution and claimed the first piece of hardware in the club's history. The Union are are pretty good, Jordan. I don't know if you knew that. They are pretty good. good. Mm -hmm. That's thing number one, and we've talked about them enough, and we will talk about them more going forward. That brings me to housekeeping thing number two, which is our plan for next week's show. So if you guys have been looking at the the playoff schedule, as I know Jordan and I have, thinking about what we're going to be doing, getting excited for playoff matchups, you'll notice that there are no games next weekend. So that's part of the international break. MLS is not playing during, not playing games during next weekend. So you and I, Jordan, are going to be doing a preview style show, doing a what to watch for from every playoff team, or maybe better put, what we'll be watching for from every playoff team, pulling out one nitty-gritty specific thing from each team for our listeners to keep their eyes on. And if you're listening to this, we're going to give our opinions, but I think it would be interesting too for all the fans from each team that we're going to be talking about. What are you looking for? What are the things that you like about what your team does? Because we're going to try not to sift through those tweets and, and read all those things and take them on as our own ideas. But I was about we're to go- say the exact opposite of that, that we will do exactly. <laughs> that's that's but, a difference in our personalities there, But we will acknowledge those things and talk about them and Make sure we shout you guys out if you do give us a little tactical tidbit on what you like to watch with your team. I love it. Okay, Jordan, you and I broke down this decision day action in a manageable way. We didn't try yeah. to consume 18 different soccer games at one time. I know there weren't 18 games, but it's yeah, like, like there were a lot of games going on. Yeah, and our eyes would have gone crossed if we did. Yeah, and my my eyes are already crossed sometimes, so we don't need to we don't need to worsen <laughs> that medical condition for me. Um, so we each split and and watch two games apiece. So one game from the Eastern Conference and one game from the Western Conference. We're gonna do our Eastern matchups first, and I'm going to kick us off with the do Chicago it. Fire and NYCFC. This game had all of the goals from Sunday. A four three win for NYCFC, who finished fifth in the regular season, comfortably qualifying for the playoffs and headed towards that matchup, as you alluded to, with Orlando City. Chicago, on the other hand, is done for the year. My More or less my darlings from this season. I know. They're done. They're done, Jordan. Ugh. I bet that pained you a little bit. And at home, they lost at home. I don't know if they lost at home all season, or maybe that was their second loss at home. But anyways, they had a really good home record. They did. And they ended this season as still a solid team in terms of on-field product under Rafael Vicky. But too many implosions, too many late game issues like they had in this game. And we'll get to that. But I want to start out with a general point from this match. There are times when I watch Major League Soccer 
where I look at the on-field product and I, you know, I'm encouraged, right? And I think this league is actually getting better and better. Major League Soccer's baseline player, the talent of that player is getting higher and higher. This is one of those games. Chicago, not a great team in terms of points. They, they missed the gigantic playoff field in the Eastern Conference. So they're clearly not a great team. NYCFC also haven't had their, their best season, at least in terms of consistent style of play from start to finish. But the talent on display in this game, from Castellanos up top, Tinnerholm at right back, to Alexander Ring in midfield. I mean, then the Chicago Fire have Barrich up top, who's been one of the best number nines in the league this season. Quality midfielders deeper down in the field for the Chicago Fire. There is talent in this league, and I, I get encouraged sometimes watching Major League Soccer, and this game for me was one of those moments. That's funny that you say that because I just finished my ballot on just players of the year in MLS and my best 11. And it was hard picking the best players in certain positions because especially when you go into the midfield, man, there are so many quality midfielders in this league and it's who has been the most effective and who has helped their team win the most amount of games. But I would agree. I think that it is really encouraging to see the quality of players not only imported into this league, but what is being built out of the development academy that has been a base for this league as well. Yeah, and we'll talk about one of those younger guys for LAFC later on in this show, or at least I'll talk about Ooh, that particular gentleman. teaser! A little bit of a teaser there for you guys. The first goal in this game is from NYCFC. Alexander Kayans grabbing one in the 15th minute off of a set piece from Maxi Morales. Obviously, that's that's kind of known. <laughs> He's going to be taking more free kicks and their set pieces, their corner kicks in this one. But after that goal, and in my main point, kind of from this entire first half, even underneath all of the goals that happened, because there's plenty in this game, as I said, is the play of Valentin Castellanos. We talked about him, I think maybe last week, Jordan, you mentioned him trying to exploit space behind the New York Red Bulls' mm-hmm. high defensive line. The Chicago Fire didn't play as high of a line as the Red Bulls did last week, but Castellanos was constantly up top, playing as that central striker in a 4-2-3-1 for Ronnie Dyla. And he was showing his range. He was showing his ability to run in behind the back line in one moment and to drop into midfield in the next moment. He has that duality as a number nine that I don't think Eber has. They're very different players, and Eber obviously injured at this point for NYCFC, so Castellanos is the guy. But Valentin Castellanos can do so much as that number nine. I love him at that spot. I think that's his best position. And he showed it in this game. He gets the game-winning goal later on in the second half, cleaning up a mistake from Navarro, the left back for the Chicago Fire. Castellanos is a borderline, maybe not a complete number nine, but he's heavily trending in that direction right now. Well, he's a young player too. And the thing I remember as a player who's coming into a new league, I know he's been here for a little bit, but he hasn't had that consistent playing time. And the more you get in and uh, acquainted with the players that are around you and with the speed of play and with being in the starting lineup game in and game out, I think that it's really allow it's allowing him to feel like he can have that duality and that can be effective for this team because he's testing it out and getting immediate results from that. 100%. I mean, in this game, he contributes on that game-winning goal, as I said. He contributes on that game-winning goal. And then on NYCFC's second goal, it's it's ultimately scored by Gary Mackay-Steven. It's in the 32nd minute, but Castellanos plays a key role in this goal. NYCFC recovered the ball right at the edge of their box, and then they knife through Chicago's half-hearted, extended, high-press sort of counter-press thing. It's Kynes who scoops the ball forward to Parks then to Mikai Steven, then to Castellanos, who returns the ball. He plays the the breaking pass. He plays the pass that ultimately forces the Chicago defense to crumble. He gets Mikai Steven in behind the line. Mikai Stevens, Mikai Steven rather, takes it forward and finishes at a ridiculous angle. It's plays like that, not just his goal-scoring ability, not just his ability to make runs behind line behind the line and create space for his teammates, but it's that passing. It's that comfort and confidence on the ball Castellanos can do almost everything up top, and I love it for NYCFC. Yeah, and he's feeling it. He scored. He had two goals tonight, you said? I think one goal in this game and an assist more or less on that goal. Okay, well, we're going to count that. And then in the last two (laughs) games, he has four goals and an assist. Yeah. That's what you want your number nine feeling going into playoffs. I was about to say that momentum, I think, is something that I can underrate. 
as someone who hasn't played in high stakes games, who hasn't played and, and thought about what it takes to win playoff matches, having guys who are flying high like Castellanos is, is huge. I want to turn the tables though. And even though okay. the Chicago Fire are not advancing to the MLS Cup playoffs, there are building blocks for this team going forward. Rafael Vicky is a huge building block from the coaching position. They're number nine. Robert Barrich is another massive building block. Jordan, before this game for the Chicago Fire, Robert Barrich was third in the league in total XG behind only Diego Rossi, one of the most talented forwards in Major League Soccer, and Jossie Zardes, who is just the solid number nine who can move and put you in a box with his movement inside the box. The fact that Barrich was top three, he scores a goal in this game and is ultimately one of the highest goal scorers in Major League Soccer after this regular season is completed. Robert Barrich is pretty much exactly what the Chicago Fire needed up top, and I don't think he gets almost any recognition from anyone, and that kind of includes us, honestly, Jordan. I think we've talked about him a little bit, but you're right, and I think one of the reasons we haven't talked about him a ton, Joe, is because his team doesn't win games. Yeah. Sad but and true. It, it, it is sad but true, because that's, in the end... That's why we watch sports. We we want that game-winning goal scorer to be on the best team. Those are the players that are going to win MVP of the, the league. Those are the players that are going to get on uh, all the ch- talk and chatter about them. But I think it might be a benefit to Barrett because next season he comes in knowing that he can score goals in MLS and everything around him is going to continue to get better. So he's only going to, the defense is going to be more solid. And as you've said, they've been your darlings. They've been a fun team. I've really enjoyed watching them as well. And I think that it's only going to get better for him because the team around him is going to continue to solidify. 100%. The trajectory for the Chicago Fire is going up. The Chicago Fire are trending positive. If they can shore up some issues with maybe some confidence problems that late in game and in key moments like that, if they can become a more consistent team, that's going to serve them well going forward. And Barrich is going to be a huge part of that. He, he gets Chicago's first goal in this game in the 33rd minute. Mihailovic serves a ball in from the far side of the field and Barrich is, is almost completely unmarked in the box and he scores the header. But if you zoom in one layer further, you notice him outfoxing Maxime Cheneau. Cheneau is the guy <laughs> who should be marking him. Kyans is off dealing with Fabian Herbers, so it's 1v1 in that area near the front, or at least the middle of the six-yard box. Cheneau loses Barrich, because right as Cheneau takes his eyes off of him, Barrich shifts in behind him, and and Cheneau loses his sight line. And it's that really smart movement from Barrich, combined with unfortunate defensive awareness from Cheneau, yes, but it's that smart movement from Barrich that allows him to be in space to score this goal. It's moments like that 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 make me encouraged watching a number nine come into Major League Soccer, watching Barrich and seeing how good of a player he is. He's a special, special attacking player for the Chicago Fire. Yeah. One thing really quick on that is I think about this a lot is when you're the attacking player, you are in control of what you're going to do. Your movements off the ball or on the ball. The defender is always reacting always reacting because they don't know what you are going to do in any given situation. So when you were saying that Cheneau maybe didn't have a good defensive play, it's like a, a half a second, maybe less lapse of focus that can be the difference in there. And this is why coaches always talk about little moments, little moments, little moments. It's like the accumulation of these little small things that you do that can really build a team and make you guys make them the best team that they can be. And I think that goes, um, we just forget about that, I think, a lot. It it looks easy. Playing soccer looks yeah. easy. It's not. It really is not. And it's not easy to defend in those types of moments. I wouldn't be worried if I'm NYCFC. Ultimately, yeah. you win this game. Yeah, you give up three goals and win four to three. But you score four goals. And you're on a hot streak, as you said in the intro, Jordan. You're on a hot streak headed into the postseason. Playing NYCFC is really hard right now. Defending them is really hard. Scoring goals in ordinary open play situations is hard. They're not an easy team. The East is not just a top four. It's not just Philly, Toronto, Orlando, and Columbus. It's a top five. NYCFC is definitely in that conversation for top teams in this conference. Yeah, but you're so right. Uh, The thing that I'm thinking and keep thinking too is they just scored five goals and then they scored four goals in back-to-back games. They just scored nine goals in a week. Is that sustainable? Probably not. But if it, even if it's not, 
This is the time to do that. This is the time to be flying high. Go for it, man. Go for it. That is our analysis of NYCFC's 4-3 win over the Chicago Fire. Jordan, we're going to be back in just a split second. But first, we have an ad read from someone that I'm sure our listeners know and love. Take it away, Paul. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. All right, Jordan, we are back for our second Eastern Conference matchup, the Columbus Crew's 2-1 win over Atlanta United. Take it away. Yeah, well, we knew we, that I was going to pick that game, right? Because if all the games kick off at the same time, there's only one game that I can watch being an analyst for the Columbus Crew. So you get what you get, people. Um, okay, I'm going to start with the Columbus Crew. It's a home game to end the season. You have the potential of gaining a home playoff game if you win this game. So there's a lot on the line, even though it doesn't seem like there is. They've been top three, four team in the league for the majority of the the season. What I liked from the crew and and is something that I've seen from them throughout the entirety of the season is when we've heard Caleb Porter talk, Joe, when you hear him talk to the media, he's always saying the, the crew is a team who is a possession-based team who wants to manipulate the numbers with and without the ball, right? We hear that a lot. And some of the time that happens by conceding possession to the other team. Because then you get the other team stretched out and you can pin them to whichever side you want to, win possession, and then do what you want with the spaces that maybe open up because they're in a more attacking space. Shape. Sure. Sure. So I think that we saw this in the first 20 minutes of the game. It was, I would say Atlanta United was definitely on the front foot and a lot of their creation was happening through the right side because they have Franco Escobar and they have Jurgen Dom on the right side. Talk about someone we haven't talked much about. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Jurgen Dom is r- really good. He's quite something. He's got speed on speed on speed and a little technical ability thrown in there, too. I thought he was one of the best players on the field tonight. And his team didn't do much, but everything that they did went through him. And so in those first 20 minutes, it was really down the right side for Atlanta. And it was all through Jurgen Dom. One of the things I thought was interesting when it was on the right side, what Atlanta would do is they have a Marcelino Moreno, their new DP signing, who is just getting introduced into the league and really maybe hasn't found his footing. But there are pieces here when you're looking at this Atlanta United team, how can they build for the future for 2021? Well, when they have Joseph Martinez back with Jurgen Dom and Marcelino Moreno, this is going to be a fun team to watch because they're going to, those two are going to have a target player to play into. When Atlanta would build up on the right side, what they would do is Moreno would sneak in between the two holding midfielders, and it was typically Artur on that left side. And Moreno would go Moreno would go behind him, in between the midfield line and the defensive line for Columbus Crew at a little diagonal run towards from the middle of the field towards the right side. And as he did that, if Artur tracked him, then the ball on the right side would go into Lorenowitz or the central midfielder Heinemann, and then they could get out the other way. But if they didn't, if, if Artur then stepped to and they got him to step and bait towards Lorenowitz, well, that entry ball into Moreno was on. And if, if they got the ball there, it was a quick turn and Atlanta was able to create a few opportunities early in the game because of that type of movement centrally. I like that you highlighted the little detail of that possession attack. And I love even more that it, that it hovers around Moreno and his mm-hmm. movement because he is something for Atlanta. Yeah. His ability 
to stride forward with the ball, to draw defenders and to maybe to, to send the ball out to an attacking teammate. His ability to just weave through players, his ability to pass through players. He looks like the guy at number 10. He looks like, let me rephrase that. It seems like he's going to help Atlanta United redefine how they play. Because he, he seems yeah. to me as a downhill, and, and correct me if you disagree, Jordan, but he seems to me like a downhill style number 10. And I'm deliberately trying not to say the name Miguel Almiron here because they're not the same player and he will not be as good as Miguel Almiron. But stylistically, I think that Marcelino Moreno is more like Almiron than he is like Pitti Martinez. And to yes. me, that seems like a call, and a lot of this will depend on the coach, but that seems like a, a call to harken back to what Tata Martino was trying to do before he went to go take over Mexico to get this team playing pedal to the metal, right? Get, get forward as quickly as possible, as often as possible, controlling the ball when you need to. That was yeah. not necessarily the attacking strategy under Frank DeBoer, but Marcelino Moreno could signify a shift back to that style of attacking soccer. So that was one thing that I noticed from Atlanta, but then the tides changed because once the Columbus crew get a hold of possession and from there through the rest of the half, probably for 30 minutes at the end of that half, they really were in control because they are a team who can dominate you when they have the ball at their feet and they can manipulate the numbers with the ball and their movement. And this was all the, the first goal was in the 28th minute was all ball, all movement off the ball, all the Columbus crew. Joe, I don't have the pleasure of being able to rewind and see. So I, I asked you, tell me how many passes that was, because I knew in my brain when I was watching it, it seemed like a lot. I couldn't get a direct answer until after the game. And you told me 23 passes for this goal. Unbelievable, right? The Columbus Crew's first goal in this matchup is 23 passes. I know you just said that, but I think it bears repeating because yeah. off the top of my head, I'm not aware of a goal in Major League Soccer that came from more more than 23 passes. Maybe there was one. In fact, there, there very likely could be one. But you just don't see goals scored after passing sequences like the one that the Columbus crew had to open the scoring against Atlanta. Yeah, and if you have one that's more than 23, go ahead and send it to us. We Please. would love to see it. Actually, we would love to see it. What was great about this is the crew also are trying to reestablish connections, right? And to have Pedro Santos and Lucas Celarion and Jassy Zardes feel like they're connected, well, that's going to be a crew team that's going to be hard to beat. And it's Santos plays this little chip ball into Zardes, who's playing that target forward. And he just has this little layoff to Milton Valenzuela, who comes inside, plays a nice threaded ball to Celarion, who's in between the two center backs. And then he doinks it over Brad Guzan. Like, it is the best little scoop chip. Um, one of the best goals I've seen from the Columbus crew. And it just, you could feel it. You could feel it building up. And I think that's what the crew do to teams. You They know. It's almost as if I feel like the other team knows that they're going to score. It's just like they're probing and probing and probing. And finally, they're like, just go with such determination. So it was a beautiful goal. I have two thoughts, Jordan. Number okay. one. I think doink is the best word that's ever been used on MLS Assist. That's that's thought really? number one. I've had a lot of weird words. It's true, but it's it's good. We like it. And, and thought number two is that Milton Valenzuela will not and should not be in Major League Soccer for all that much longer. Right? Mm. I mean, this is his, his first real stretch, and it's hard in, in 2020, being healthy, right? We've yeah. seen him get consistent minutes for the crew at left back this season. But he is, he is levels above so many other of the fullbacks in this league. His quality on the ball, his impact in the buildup on the left side of this goal, in the final third even, rotating inside, doing all sorts of things that you love to see from a, from a modern fullback. There's no way, right? I don't have any insider info here. I'm not allocation disorder. But saying that Milton Valenzuela will be in MLS for a, another year and a half or two years seems like a really really unlikely idea. He is very good and he likely will be gone very soon. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. There's some things I could go into Milton Valenzuela talk a little bit deeper. I'm not <laughs> going to right now, um, but I have a few thoughts on that. I think for the crew, it was good to go into halftime with that one nothing lead, knowing that they should have had a couple other goals. But then Atlanta comes out in, in the second half, knowing that they're going to have they're going to have to 
open up. They're going to have to give the crew something. And the moment they start attacking, the crew in the 55th minute do something completely different than they did in that first goal. They scored on a two-pass sequence that went from their own defensive 18 into the back of the net in a matter of seconds. It was Milton Valenzuela again with... You have to go back and watch this pass. He almost leads Artur into this space. It's a perfect ball. And then Artur, with the inside of his right foot, just bends it into Jossie Zardes, who's stretching the back line, ends up dribbling 50 yards, in the, and then finishes it in the five hole of Brad Guzan. It is the opposite goal of what we saw, but also shows you it, do, it doesn't matter how the crew, th- this is what I'm saying, they can concede possession, stretch you out, and then punish you as well. The best teams in Major League Soccer, and I've never said this expressly on this show before, but I, I think I've thought it and I'm only now just able to put it together. The best teams in Major League Soccer are the ones who can score those opposite goals. Mm-hmm. It's LAFC being able to break you down in possession with long sequences of passing and then get into the box and, and score a tap-in. It's, it's them also then being able to drive forward in transition and score a goal against a recovering defense. It's the Philadelphia yeah. Union, the Supporters' Shield winners, pressing you and scoring a quick tap-in from a transition moment. And then controlling the ball, getting, getting Brendan Aronson on the ball in zone 14 or sliding behind the back line in possession and squaring it for a goal inside the box. I mean, it's those contrasting styles of goals that's, I think, a great indicator of, of quality in an attacking sense. And the Columbus crew are absolutely one of the teams that can score those opposite goals. And we saw it in this game. Yeah. And just a couple minutes later, they ended up giving up a penalty. Uh, it was Jurgen Dom opening up space by stretching wide. Because one of the things, if if you give him the ball at his feet, he can beat you 1v1. You said he's shifty. He's good on the dribble. So then if you close the space to him, he can run in behind and find that slip ball. So what happened is they ended, Atlanta ended up slipping the ball between the center back and the outside back of Williams and Valenzuela. And Jurgen Dom tries to cut in, get the ball, gets fouled by Valenzuela. And it's Moreno who ends up scoring the penalty. But it just, a little bit after that, they take Jurgen Dom off the field. And from then on out, Atlanta really struggled because I really felt like Dom was a player that they were counting on and he was really leading them. And then we're just going to forget the end of the game happened because it was (laughs) weird and wild and um, a red card and a lot of um, finger pointing and unfriendly action. I like that we're just going to brush past that. That Yeah, let's just go. Let's move on. I like it. Well, Jordan, that is that is great analysis of the crew's 2-1 win over Atlanta United. The Columbus crew will be advancing to the first round, well, not really the first round of the Eastern Conference because they have those extra teams playing mm-hmm. those playing games at the bottom of the bracket. But the crew will advance and they will play the New York Red Bulls in their opening game at home in Columbus. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. That is our Eastern Conference analysis from Decision Day. Shifting over to the other side of the country, I'm keeping us on the West Coast for my matchup, which is LAFC versus the Portland Timbers. They play to a 1-1 draw. Both of these teams are in the playoffs, but this game was still fun despite the fact that not there wasn't really a playoff berth up for grabs. Yeah, well, I feel like we just everybody's just curious about is LAFC the LAFC we've known them to be. Yeah. And honestly, after this game, the scoreline maybe wouldn't allow you to think so. A 1-1 draw with Portland who is missing a good number of players. I mean, the Timbers are missing Blanco and Nieshkoda to ACL injuries. They're missing Jeremy Abobasi right now, or at least they were in this game due to a concussion. No Diego Chara in this one either. I mean, they're missing four key players. So even with that reality that the Timbers weren't at full strength, LAFC were themselves. 
Yes, there, mm. are, there are extenuating circumstances here. LAFC, with Carlos Vela back, they were vintage LAFC. They attacked well, even with Eddie Segura playing right back. A little bit weird. What? They, they play in the 4-3-3. They smothered Portland's buildup. They counterpress. They attack well. They create chances for their best players, Carlos Vela and Diego Rossi on the front line. Next to Christian Torres, who's that youngster I mentioned earlier. That front three controlled so much of this game. And LAFC looked exactly like the team that Bob Bradley has built them to be. So question, is it just, is it that easy? Is it just plug and play? Plug Carlos Vela back in and you can play this, this soccer again. I don't know, Jordan, because Carlos Vela played like, he played like himself in as, in as much as LAFC played like themselves. Vela right. was moving, he was cutting, he was doing all the things that you'd expect him to do, even not 100%. He looked every bit as good as he as he's looked in the past. So I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me, realistically, that this LAFC team is so utterly reliant on him mm-hmm. that they can only play at their top level when he's in the lineup. But the data, even even though it's a small sample size, the data does seem to suggest otherwise. Yeah. It's so strange to me because it shouldn't be that it shouldn't be that simple, especially with a team like LAFC who has so many moving parts and so many quality players who can really be game changers. And I know he's Carlos Vela. Like I get that, but he's also a winger, you know, he's, or he's playing center forward. Like he's not a a typical player that you would think has so much impact defensively on what a team does and how they can defend. Or I don't know. I, I just, it just seems like it's too easy that it's just plug and play. Is he that good? I mean, I know he's good. (laughs) What? Jordan has questions. This is my brain just thinking out loud. Jordan has questions for Bob Bradley and Carlos Vela, and I do as well, but I'm going to set those aside because it is Carlos Vela who scores LAFC's only goal in this game. Not their best chance even, but their only converted goal. It's in the fifth minute, and LAFC are pressing high up the field. They're doing the classic LAFC thing. They catch Eric Williamson, who's playing as half of their double pivot in Gio Savarese's 4-2-3-1, 4-4-2 kind of thing. They get him you know, napping a little bit on the ball. They win the ball. Latif Blessing takes a shot. It's blocked by Steve Clark, but Vela puts it away. The goal itself is not extremely impressive, Jordan. It's a, it's a putback from Carlos Vela. But the greater point here, the greater tactical point of how LAFC pressed the Portland Timbers buildup, I think is much more notable because it has a, it has a great impact on almost the entirety of this game. Okay. So I'm going to talk through it. I'm going to talk through it. The Timbers could not build through LAFC's press. LAFC was pressing in a 4-3-3 with Latif Blessing and Jose Cifuentes up against Paredes and Williamson in Portland's midfield. Do you think high pressing too against a Portland team who is so good in transition or wants to be good in transition? And do you think high pressing in the way that he did was important in this game to help them mitigate that transition soccer? 100%. They limited... Portland's ability to attack downhill because Portland couldn't get the ball out of their own half in the first half. It was a two for two matchup in, in the defensive midfield area for the Portland Timbers. It was Williamson and Paredes against Blessing and Cifuentes. The triangles matched up against each other. Then deeper downfield for LAFC, it was Atuesta versus Diego Valeri. So it was essentially a three V three matchup in that Uh space, which allowed LAFC's front three of Torres, Rossi, and Vela to match up against Portland's back four and goalkeeper, to shift back Mm. and forth to pressure, to funnel the ball to one side. LAFC was controlling Portland's entire build-up unit with fewer players than Portland had, which allowed them a numbers-up advantage on the back line, which essentially made life incredibly difficult for Portland to advance the ball past the, the press and into the attacking half. That tactic was a huge part of the first half. Portland could do almost nothing with the ball. Gio Savarese tweaks things in the second half. He moves Eric Williamson higher, a little bit wider as well, making their shape more of a 4-3-3 for the Portland Timbers, inverting their triangle a little bit, changing the matchup, changing the spacing in midfield, and giving his central midfield players, Paredes, Valeri, and Williamson, more time and space to move and to build up against LAFC's press. That wasn't what led to the goal, for the Portland Timbers late in this game, but that change did give the Portland Timbers a little bit more footing in the second half. It also makes those midfielders, after after seeing the same picture for the whole entire first half, now it makes LAFC in their defensive shape have to just adjust. And 
it's one of the reasons why teams can come out after halftime and be so effective because you've just seen the same pictures typically for 45 minutes. Then you go and adjust at halftime and you can come back out and do something different. I know you said the goal comes later in this game, but um, that's a smart tweak there by Savarese. 100%. A really, it was a really good tweak from Savarese. It allowed his team to gain some traction offensively. I've got two quick points before we move okay. on to our last game of this episode. One is LAFC and one is talking about the Portland Timbers goal in the 90th minute. LAFC first off, they're going to be missing players going forward into the playoffs because of the international break, because of the quarantine rules and restrictions that Major League Soccer and the United States have in place. LAFC is likely going to be missing a number of starters going forward into the first round of the Western Conference playoffs. Christian Torres, the 16-year-old winger, mitigate some of those concerns for me. And I'm assuming that he's mitigating some of the concerns for Bob Bradley as well. He put in a solid, solid performance on the left wing for LAFC, doing almost everything that you could ask for. He played nice <laughs> cutbacks with his left. He cut in on his right foot. He complimented Vela and Rossi with his movement, shifting in and out of space. He looked like the real deal as a left winger. For as young as he is, I was really impressed by his performance out wide. Homegrown, right? Homegrown. LAFC's first homegrown, I believe, to get MLS action. Imagine being a homegrown with LAFC in these last few years, the front runners that they've had, the wingers that they've had, and learning from them every single day. Bob Bradley molding your mind to think <laughs> in these certain ways and, and to see different uh, visuals on the field. It doesn't surprise me that he does those things well. I'm imagining Bob Bradley playing with Torres' brain like Play-Doh. Um, and it's a little disturbing. <laughs> I, I wouldn't holding. recommend visualizing that. But it's true. There was a moment in this game on the near side, Torres was playing on that left side closest to the camera. And you could see Bob Bradley point at Torres and then motion where he wanted him to move. And almost before Bradley could even point to the second spot or, or finish his communication, Torres was already gone. He was moving yeah. exactly to that space. The connection is there. The soccer IQ is there. This is a talented young player who, you're exactly right, Jordan, is in a great set of circumstances, mm -hmm. learning from really, really smart soccer people. Yeah. That's point number one. It was a little longer than I anticipated. Point number two, the Portland Timbers goal. They grabbed the equalizer in the 90th minute. It's just a great counterattack. In soccer, you can do so many things really, really well. LAFC did so many things really, really well. But man, the Portland Timbers hit him with that sucker punch in the 90th minute. It's Jorge Villafania ultimately getting the header inside the box, but it all comes from a counterattack along the far side. It's the right side of the field for the Portland Timbers. They build forward, sucking LAFC over towards that side. Eddie Segura then gets sucked in a little bit as the right back. He's moving into the middle of the box and Diego Valeri punishes him for it. He hits a perfect cross from the right side of the field right onto the head of Jorge Villafania. Portland grabbed that goal with a perfectly executed counterattack and draw this game. Oh, weird. Counterattack. It was like you Nashville's and Nashville's uh, game-winning goal off of a, you guessed it, set piece. <laughs> Those things are pretty important. In case you weren't aware of that, Jordan, or in case our listeners weren't aware, teams that are good at counterattacks and good at set pieces are really, really hard to beat. The Portland yeah. Timbers would not be beaten in this game. Both teams, regardless of the final result, are headed to the playoffs. LESC will be playing the Seattle Sounders for the, I think, I'm checking my notes, the 1200th time this year. <laughs> and the Portland Timbers will be playing FC Dallas, which conveniently, okay. Jordan, is one of the teams that you broke down in our final piece of soccer tactical analysis of the regular season, Minnesota United's 3-0 win over FC Dallas. Oh, that's interesting because right when the FC Dallas-Minnesota game ended, there it was said and assumed that they were going to have a rematch, but that must have meant there was a result in a different game that changed that up. It must have been the Colorado win. Yeah, the Colorado Rapids really just knifed up this whole playoff picture from the start what? with points per game. Okay, well, there <laughs> you go. Okay, so there goes one of my points about how I felt like Dallas might have had the edge on this one, even though they lost three to nothing. If they're going to play in the playoffs, they might have had the edge, but crumple that up and throw it out the window. Um, I'm going to go just straight into the first goal for Minnesota because this is something I feel like I've seen at least recently in MLS because of the same day travel and maybe just the mental fatigue that the players have is just careless giveaways defensively in your own defensive third. 
And this goal happens in the 17th minute. It's Ryan Hollingshead who's trying to pass the ball back. Dallas actually build up a, through a couple passes into the midfield and then play out wide to Hollingshead, who gets pressured by Minnesota. And then Minnesota is really good at reading cues. Once Hollingshead gets the ball, they start to press. And his only option is to play back to his center back, Brisson. But Robin Lud is right there. He picks off the ball. And this is one of the things that... Minnesota and about their ability to be this this transition team. I got flashbacks of them from the beginning of the season in that game against Portland because it was Ludd who picks the ball up. He automatically lets the defender drop off just a little bit, enough so he can pick his head up and see that Reynoso is central. He plays that ball back into Reynoso's feet, who then can play the, the following pass. So they're just skipping away as one defender comes they're pushing it to the next player who has a little bit more space, and it ends up being Kevin Molino, who places the ball into the back of the net with his right foot. But it brings me to my point, because we're going to see this again and what I'm going to talk about, is is Minnesota United the best counterattacking team or the best transition team from defense to offense in Major League Soccer? They've got to be up there right? They have to be, if not the top team, one of the absolute best teams at that in Major League Soccer. They move so quickly and they create so many good chances from their defensive structure leading right into that attacking phase. Mm-hmm. Man, I did, a, I did a soccer one-on-one episode for the Total Soccer Show this past week talking about soccer's phases of play. That attacking transition phase, those, those split seconds after the ball is, is won from a defensive team and when they're changing to become the attacking team, Minnesota United is lethal in those moments, and they were lethal in those moments in this game. Yeah. Guess how they scored their second goal? Uh, I'm going to assume that it was an attacking transition moment. Same thing. They actually had a really good buildup. It was right from the, the kickoff. So the goal comes in the 47th minute, and it's Emmanuel Reynoso's first goal for Minnesota United. Even though I feel like he is so crucial in the way that they play, I, I, I was shocked to hear that that was his first goal. And it happens because Minnesota is building up and they keep possession through that first minute of the second half and they create a chance. But then Dallas is trying to play out. And I think Dallas does a pretty good job of trying to play out their right side and use Brian Reynolds as the person that they can one two with. So he can hold the ball, bring players into him, connect into the midfield and then get it back beyond that defender that was pressing him before. But this time it doesn't work. Reynolds connects, and then that next pass from Barrios back into the midfield is just a poor pass. He's trying to connect with Santos, and it gets picked off. Now because of the structure and the attack of Minnesota, they had so many numbers forward. What I really like is Robin Lud again, is the player that receives the ball off of that. Not the initial transition ball, but the next pass. And what he does is he allows the ball in these high-intensity moments. He's already inside the box on the left side. He allows the ball to come from his right side and go all the way across his body to his left. And I say it like that because it wasn't as if the ball was pinged in there so fast. It was actually a kind of a slow rolling ball that by waiting there, he could have tempted a defender in to tackle him in that moment. But... But that decision was correct because the defenders were trying to do everything they could to block the space at the top of the six. That that little extra half a second gave Reynoso the ability to go from the far side of the 18 into the center of the box. And then Ludd plays a one-time ball into Reynoso. And it's a beautiful finish in the end. But it's that wherewithal and that patience to let the ball come across his body and allow the buildup to happen, even in those heightened moments. So it was really a nice goal from for Minnesota United. In Minnesota, we haven't mentioned it yet, but they were missing a significant number of starters in this game. They're missing yeah. a true number nine. I mean, it was Ludd playing as a pseudo number nine. If, from what I saw... If that is correct, he's playing in that central space a little bit more. He is not a number nine, usually. He's usually more out wide. Minnesota United covered for the lack of players, their lack of normal starters, with guys like Lud performing very well in this game, being influential in the attack and allowing their star players, Kevin Molino, who grabs the brace, and Emmanuel Reynoso, who grabs the second goal from Minnesota United, allowing those players 
to really make their mark in the attacking transition phase of play and scoring those goals. That ability uh-huh. for the guys who are not regular starters to step up and perform well is huge. It was huge in this game, and it will be huge if needed in the postseason. A player that comes top of mind, and I actually wanted to watch him specifically, but I got sidetracked watching this game, is Marlon Harrison playing a holding mid, a double pivot with Jan Gregush. That's like, new, right? That's never happened before to my knowledge. No, I do not ever remember Marlon Harrison playing in a holding mid position. And I think it was smart because they didn't ask a lot out of him in building up and he just played simple. He got the ball to Reynoso and that's really all I noticed from him. But you're you're exactly right. At one point in listening to the broadcast, I heard that they had out 11 players out. They have 11 players that are injured. Wow. Exactly. It's incredible. And it might not just be injury. It actually might be some international call-ups or... But maybe I'd have to do some more research on that. But just that, the fact that they have that and they beat Dallas three to nothing. Like this is a team. Yeah, this is a team who has a little bit of of grit to them. The third goal also comes in transition. I'm just going to go to that before I have something to say about uh, Dallas. And this transition moment I thought was really interesting because in the second half, they brought Dallas brought Fafa Pico in. And one of the things I think they do when Fafa Pico comes in is Ryan Hollingshead plays not really as an outside back, maybe in moments, but he really plays almost that internal channel a lot more. Have you noticed that? And so he'll get forward almost like an additional midfielder in there. But I think what happened in the transition moment, because Holling Pico was out wide and Hollingshead was central in that transition, the player that Minnesota is really good at finding as an outlet is Finley. And he was playing on the right side. And so that outlet ball goes straight to Finley. And because Hollingshead was centrally and central and Finley was wide. That ball beat Hollingshead. The the angle of which the ball was at played Finley into space and then he could dribble into the space towards maybe the the edge of the six on the right side. So what happens next is Brisson has to shift and then Hedges has to shift. And so there's all of these little moments and these little shifts that have to come into play because of that one player who's Maybe not out of position because it's the channel that he's wanting to play in because Dallas needed a goal, but it put a lot of pressure on the back line. And then it, because of that, those shifting moments, then Finley had a wide open pass to Reynoso and he plays it to Molino at the far side. That same kind of play that they had in the first half, but the opposite direction. And they score another goal. It was uh, a really good recognition from Minnesota at if Hollingshead's playing in here, this is where the space is going to be and behind him, and it's going to cause problems problems from Dallas, and they made them pay. We've praised Minnesota United, who will go on to play the Colorado Rapids in the first round of the Western Conference playoffs. What about Dallas, Jordan? To end our analysis of Decision Day, what did you take yeah. away from them in this match, even losing by multiple goals? Okay. We've talked about him, and I think he is such a head-scratcher. So I'm going to go <laughs> I back. I know it's coming. I know it's coming. To Ricarte. Because... Technically, I want to say this guy might be the best passer in Major League Soccer. Whoa. Okay. He can he can do so many things. And I think what's hard, he's not a midfielder that wants to beat you on the dribble. I actually don't. I don't know if I've seen him dribble out of a situation. Can you recall a situation where you've seen him dribble out of one? I mean, it's possible, but nothing comes immediately to mind. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's different, right? Because... We see a lot of these central midfielders who have the ability to dribble out of situations, and I don't really think he wants to do that because he's so aware of everything that's around him that he can pass out of situations instead. He's really aware of the field, and I think he does come deeper because he likes to connect. He likes to feel like he is the heartbeat of the team and the pulse of which how they're playing and getting on the ball. So one of the reasons why I say this is because there were multiple times where I'm like, man, I should clip that pass I should clip that pass like right at the beginning of the game he plays this little ball to to Barrios and he just like comes it's a short snappy swing from the outside of the ball to the inside and it has the right spin where it just lays perfectly to Barrios's foot and it's a 20 yard space it's 
maybe even smaller than that. It's a small space, but he pings it in there. And you contrast that to something that happened later in the game, pretty late in the game when Dallas switched to two front runners, is he gets the ball at the edge maybe of his defensive third and the middle third. So he's pretty deep in Dallas's territory and he faces up. Nobody's pressuring him. Dallas have Hara and Pepe up front. And Pepe starts stretching the back line. Six, it had to have been a 60 or 65 yard ball from Ricarte from that edge of his defensive third all the way in behind the back line on a dime to Pepe's foot. Like, it was so good. And granted, there's no pressure on the ball. So is he that good with with pressure on the ball in that exact situation? I don't know. But the passes I've seen from him are really interesting. And I think that you have to figure out a way that you can get players around him who maybe are better at dribbling out of space or maybe want to be that next connection piece with him because he's a connector. Like, that's what I keep thinking is he's a connector. He's not a he's not a fancy Reynoso, right? He's a, a passer. Our quest to figure out Andres Ricarte <laughs> will continue. And it has been a main theme of our last handful of episodes. We heard a little bit about it on Twitter and got some insights from listeners, and we thank you for that. We will continue to take your insights if you have them, because we are still working to solve the puzzle that is Andres Ricarte. But Jordan, thank you for getting us a little bit closer. I love that. He does I, look I like think quite the technical player with his passing ability. Yeah, he's a good passer. He's a really good passer. We will continue to watch Ricarte. We will continue to watch FC Dallas, along with the whole host of other teams that are in Major League Soccer's playoff field. A few too many teams, but I've said that before, and I, I probably will say it again. But I'm, not, I'm trying not <laughs> to take too much joy out of the playoffs because they're coming up. We're excited about it. We will have a preview episode next week talking about one thing that we will be watching for and that we would suggest you watch for, dear listener, in each playoff matchup that we're going to see headed forward. Sounds good. And let us know what you guys think too, but thanks for listening. I know we both really appreciate it. Absolutely. Jordan, thank you for talking with me and listeners, we'll be back again 